I'm Clara Sunderland and Talk the Migration is supported by the Department of Politics and the Migration Research Group, both at the University of Sheffield. Political theorists have long been interested in the question of open borders. Do states have a right to exclude migrants from their territory? Is there a human right to immigrate? The focus has very much been on the territorial border. Yet in a forthcoming book, still about to be finished, Professor Chandran Kukatis, who is Chair in Political Theory and Head of the Department of Government at the London School of Economics, argues that political theorists must also consider internal border controls. To be sure, there is a heavily controlled territorial border for most states, but things such as ID cards, controls on employers, on landlords, on universities and hospitals and so forth are also key restrictions on freedom, and these affect migrants and non-migrants. So to start, I asked Chandran Kukatas to give us an overview of the main argument of his forthcoming book. So I'm currently writing a book called Immigration and Freedom, and the, the main claim that the book tries to make is that it's not so much immigration that we need to be worried about as immigration control. Uh, the reason for this is that immigration control in the end turns out to be less about controlling immigrants or would-be immigrants than about controlling citizens and to that extent also residents in a society. And this is because immigration is really not just about border crossing. Millions of people cross borders every year, 70 million cross the border. Uh, that divides the UK from the rest of the world. 380 million people cross the American border at some stage during the year. Um, it's not about just border control, although borders are obviously important. Immigration control is really about controlling what people do once they've entered a society. Governments try to limit what they can do by, say, restricting their freedom to take jobs, to attend universities, to set up businesses, to engage in all kinds of ways with the domestic population. The problem is that in order to do this, governments also then have to control their own citizens because they are too ready to do business with uh, people from outside, to hire them, to teach them, to rent to them, to do all kinds of things that involve an interaction with uh, people from, from abroad. So in order to do this, what governments have to do is that they have to regulate, they have to monitor, and increasingly to punish uh, its own citizens. Now, this is, I think, a serious worry that hasn't been really considered because it's not only something that is of direct concern to the extent that it's a limitation on individual freedom, but it's also important because it has consequences for a society's institutions. If a government sets out, for example, to reduce net migration, and this becomes an increasingly important target, then what it will find itself um, confronting is the problem of, for example, trying to monitor um, would-be immigrants or immigrants, trying to regulate labor markets, trying to deport people. Uh, all of these things are very, very resource intensive. They're, they're not only costly, uh, in money, but they're also costly in time, and they they take up institutional resources, which then leads to governments being very, very tempted to try to get around the law. So increasingly the courts are um, hampered, increasingly legislation is brought in to try to, 
control, um, immigration, uh, all of this, I think, has a very, very serious and unhappy impact upon not immigrants as such or people outside the society, but on citizens and residents of the country in question itself. So what my book tries to do is to bring this out and to say, look, this is a serious problem. Um, the second part of the book then asks, well, is this justifiable nonetheless? Because the, the gains from immigration control might just offset uh, all these disadvantages. After all, any policy has its costs. Uh, and here I want to consider three kinds of, uh, of argument. One, um, an economic argument to say that immigration control is beneficial, because immigration does not benefit a society. Another is the cultural argument that says we should try to control immigration in order to preserve our cultural integrity. And the third is a self-determination argument, which says we should try to control our borders uh, because this is what it means to be a self-governing people. And what I try to say in the book is that none of these arguments uh, really hold up. And so we need to be worried about the costs of immigration control and the gains from it are negligible or, in fact, not there at all. Great. So it was two things that I thought about now when you um, when you outlined this argument and also when I heard you present it um, earlier, earlier, it was this month. Um, uh, and, and one thing is what I think you brought up then as well is, you know, is this an argument for open borders? Um, and the second question is, is this a libertarian argument or because someone, I suppose the only one who's perhaps made a slightly similar point is Nozick and the idea, and I suppose you hear libertarians make the argument that, you know, border um, restrictions are problematic because they stop people from, uh, I suppose, like trading with each other or doing business with each other across borders. So, so, so is it an open borders argument and is it a libertarian argument or do you, is, is it sort of a, a, a broader argument than that? I, I think it's neither of those things, and I think it is a broader argument. It's not an open borders argument because uh, what I'm trying to say is, in part, that the idea of this distinction between open borders and closed borders is a mistaken one. Uh, borders are open or closed to varying degrees. And um, one of the things that I'm trying to suggest is that the openness of a border is not to be judged by the ease uh, of entry into a society or by the number of people who uh, enter a society. The openness of a border should really be thought about in terms of the extent to which um, there are controls over people. And this means, in the end, controls not only over outsiders but also over, over insiders. The society is a more open one to the extent that it is easier to to move, uh, one of the benefits of this is that it makes your own society a much less internally controlled one. Now, one of the reasons why I don't want to make the argument in terms of open borders is that I don't want to suggest that there is only one solution to this. Um, I want to suggest that actually um, we can think in all kinds of ways about how it is that um, the easing of controls on immigration 
might not only be beneficial because of the gains to freedom of the citizens and residents of a society, but it might also be um, beneficial more broadly. Now, the reason this is not simply a libertarian argument is that among libertarians, there are many, many different views, including some that emphasize the importance of immigration controls or border controls, because some, some libertarians take a very, very strict view about property rights and suggest that um, until um, we recognize that the world is one that has got to be um, a place in which all property is privately held, um, and because these libertarians think that uh, until we have such a world, wealthy countries are perfectly justified in restricting immigration because people are taxed in order to pay for services and so on that go to immigrants. You know, many of these libertarians just don't accept the, the open borders argument. There are, of course, libertarians who do believe in open borders, um, but then so are the socialists and, you know, people of all kinds of other ideologies. So it's, it's not really a specifically libertarian argument. Mm. I think one thing that's really interesting with um, this argument about internal um, border controls and, and the focus on border control is that, in a way, political scientists uh, or migration scholars, more broadly, have talked about these internal borders for a while, I suppose. Um, but why do you think it is that... Um, well, two questions, really. So why do you think it is that it hasn't really been a topic of much normative discussion, even though it's been a topic of empirical um, discussion? Um, and uh, a slightly different question is, why do you think so many people in liberal democracies seem quite willing to actually accept that their freedoms are restricted in these ways that you mentioned in order to control um, immigration? Um, so let me answer the second question first. I think uh, one of the reasons why people haven't really thought very much about the loss of freedom here is that the, the loss of freedom has taken place very gradually. Mm. The philosopher David Hume once wrote, it's seldom that liberty of any kind is lost all at once. Um, F.A. Hayek, in fact, used this uh, sentence from Hume uh, as an epigraph for his book, The Road to Serfdom. Uh, people don't notice the loss of freedom when it disappears very, very slowly, and they don't recognize the, the loss of freedom when um, it was never there in the first place when they were born. For example, very, very few young people today, I think, know the world that existed before 9-11, when going through an airport was not actually a difficult matter. It was not one in which you were constantly subject to checks and uh, scans and all kinds of things. They just take it for granted. Those of us who are older do remember what it was like before. We, we recognize the loss of that freedom because that loss came very, very suddenly. Well, the, the gradual increase in the monitoring and the regulation that we are subject to has been so gradual as to be almost unnoticed um, until at some point you wake up and you realize that actually things are much more difficult now than they used to be. It used to be much easier, for example, to hire a scholar from abroad if you're, if you're trying to fill a job. Now it's uh, you know it's a very very complicated matter, it's even to the extent that there are times when 
you ask, is it worth going to all this trouble when you know we could get someone who's not as good, but it's not going to be a hassle uh, for a job that's only going to last two years, let's say. Um, that's a serious cost, but you, know, you don't notice it when it just happens very, very gradually. Now, your other question was, well, why haven't scholars um, talked about this before? Um, I don't think there's a there's a good reason for it, really, other than, you know, it's un not until something's pointed out that people suddenly realize that there's something to talk about. And, uh, <laughs> in this particular case, you know, the discussions that scholars have had over the years about immigration um, have really been about whether or not there's been a whether or not there's a right to immigrate, whether or not immigration control is restrictive of the freedom of, uh, of immigrants. Um, no one is really asked what is the impact of this on um, domestic society. And perhaps it's because, you know, in thinking about my answer to, the, to your previous question, well, maybe it's the fact that none of these restrictions have ever been particularly noticeable in the past. But now I think they're becoming more noticeable. Um, that's why people like me have started to say things like, well, actually, this is respecting our freedom. Um, but in all this is just speculation, really. Um, I guess there's got to be a time when something is asked for the first time, um, and this may be the case. Mm, I find it quite interesting in a way as well how it ties into um, a different debate about feasibility um, in political theory, because... I don't know if you think there's a link there, but because there's, like you say, there's this focus on whether there's a right to exclude um, immigrants or not, but there's not really been that much discussion about, uh, you know, how feasible it is to exclude um, immigrants and what that means. And I suppose in a way your argument contributes to to making that explicit, that there is a big cost actually to, um, um, to exclude. Yes, I, I think the political theory discussions of immigration and immigration control has tended to be um, very abstract, uh, such that global theorists are completely unaware of uh, the history of immigration. But on the whole, it doesn't really play a big role in their analysis, um, which tends not to be um, fine, fine textured in terms of uh, the empirical uh, content. It tends to be much more um, you know, philosophically rigorous. But um, uh, the problem here, I think, is that it's when you look at the actual practice of immigration and immigration control, and you look at the fact that it's something that's highly institutionalized, that you come to realize that there's actually quite a bit more that needs to be, to be talked about. Um, and I, I think this is probably going to happen. I mean, there are books that are coming out that start to look at the institutional elements of immigration control from a more philosophical perspective. But I think this change is yet to be to be really felt. Mm. Uh, so I wanted to ask you something uh, different as well, uh, just um, at the end of our discussion here, um, which is about um, an argument that you've made about refugees. So I was wondering if we could just uh, if we could just finish and talking about that. So so it's it's a, it's a new topic, um, and you've made the argument in a recent book chapter that we should perhaps abandon attempts to define refugees as like a separate category of migrants. So I was wondering if you could say uh, just briefly why why you think that and why or you think the consequences might be. 
Yes. Well, the, the chapter you, you mentioned is one called Are Refugees Special? Uh, and the argument I try to put here uh, really is that although everyone says that refugees are a special case, um, in practice, they don't really treat refugees uh, as that special. Uh, and the reason for this has much to do with the fact that refugees in the end are also immigrants to the extent that the impact they have on any society is much like that of any immigrant. Uh, that is to say, they will um, occupy space, they will um, take work, they will use public services, they will get sick, they will you know, interact with the rest of the community. You know, they're in fact indistinguishable from, from migrants. And since governments are under great pressure to reduce migration nowadays, um, they tend to treat refugees as people who in fact swell the migration numbers. Now the International Refugee Convention does um, suggest that refugees are special because um, if you fall into the category of refugee as defined by the convention, then should you land on the shore of any uh, country that is a signatory to the convention, uh, then you are entitled to be considered for refugee status and found to be a refugee, you're entitled to be given refuge or asylum. Um, now, the problem for governments is that um, if refugees turn up um, in large numbers, then this does actually mean that they will turn up as uh, immigrants. So even though the the principle looks like it's you know, immigration control for immigrants, um, open borders for refugees. That's really not the way it works in practice. Now, I don't think I really want to say, look, let's abandon the refugee convention. Uh, let's abandon the definition because politically that would not be a realistic uh, outcome. It wouldn't, for example, mean better treatment of refugees. I think we've simply got to work with the institutions that we've got. But the point of my paper really was to highlight um, this tension and to say, you know, in reality, um, this claim that refugees are special is really honored more in the breach than in the observance. They're not really treated as that special. They're treated as another category. Um, but on the whole, when you think about the fact that there are millions and millions of refugees sitting in refugee camps around the world, and that some of them have been sitting there for years, it doesn't look like international institutions really treat them as as that special. Mm, I think you say something as well that the sort of attempt to distinguish refugees from other uh, categories of migrants is actually a way to try to exclude people um, rather than you know, it's a bit counterintuitive because you would think it's a way to include people, to include those who are refugees. But I think you say something along the lines that well, it's a way to actually say, OK, maybe this small section of people would be welcome, but but the rest of you aren't. Yes. Well, in fact, if one looks at the, the convention definition of a refugee, it's really quite restrictive. You're only officially a refugee if you are fleeing and are outside your country of origin. Uh, and cannot go back owing to a well-founded fear of persecution on a number of very, very specific grounds, including you know, uh, religion or ethnicity or race and so on. 
it does not make you a refugee if, for example, you are simply fleeing a war zone. Uh, so most of the people fleeing Syria, um, they're not refugees, strictly speaking. Now, of course, um, there have been other attempts to define refugees, the, um, you know, the Organization of African Unity, I think it was, um, came up with a different definition and other international organizations have uh, tried to suggest others um, in order to capture different sorts of uh, conditions that turn people into de facto refugees, that is to say people who are fleeing for their lives, seeking refuge in some way. Um, but um, I think in the end, um, not a lot is going to change just because we say change the terminology or change uh, um, the rules. In a sense, what's needed is a different sort of uh, um, outlook on the part not only of uh, governments but also of citizens with regard to the concerns of, uh, of these uh, unfortunate people. So is that a general outlook of just a more positive view on immigration? Um, well, I, I think it may have to go hand in hand with a more positive view of immigration, because as I said, refugees in the end are also migrants. They're a particular kind of migrant, but they, they are migrants. And if that's the case, they're going to have the same sort of impact. Um, now, um, if people are hostile to migration, they're not going to be so ready to say, well, okay, we'll, we'll make an exception here. Um, especially if there are you know, a lot of people who fall into this category. Um, so, yeah, I think there would need to be more generally a change in attitude towards um, immigration. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, that's not something that governments or elites around the world are trying to foster. If anything, most of them, I think, are trying to take advantage of the fact that there are significant parts of you know, different political societies well, hostile or sometimes very hostile to immigration, um, that's where the votes are. So um, if that's the case, then that's what uh, um, you know, politicians are going to be driven by. Um, so really, in the end, the only thing that's going to make a real difference is some sort of change in, um, in the attitudes of Everywhere. To find out more about Chandran Kakatas and his extensive related work on immigration, multiculturalism and freedom, please go to our website talkingmigration.com. I certainly look forward to reading Kakatas' book Immigration and Freedom when it comes out next year. But that was all for this time. Thank you very much for listening.